Welcome to the 13th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about systems design. What does everybody think system design is? I think a lot of people think this is something different than, or I think a lot of people disagree on exactly what system design is. Jared? <laughs> yeah, I guess it can be kind of broad. Um, I, I guess to me, systems design is how both the actual applications that the internal developers write, I, I guess, you know, the core applications of your product interact with standalone components like the database servers or uh you know, Redis or you know, name any technology that is going to be used by your application. And uh, so I would consider systems design how those pieces will all interact, how you're going to, you know, what, what database what technology will you use? Are you going to use Postgres? Are you going to use MySQL? Are you going to use, uh, you know, Microsoft SQL Server? Uh, <laughs> and um, I also think it's important that, you know, for the longest time, I think it's been the norm for developers to be the ones that decide, make all those decisions and then kind of push it down on ops. And I, and I really think that along with some of the, one of the other earlier topics we talked about DevOps uh, along with that came this also notion that, Hey, ops people have some opinions on this stuff as well. You know, an ops person might be able to help you make the database decision as they, know how it runs on 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 the systems you run and you might get better performance out of say postgres versus you know other database technology or whatever whatever fits your use case and so for me i think it's important for both dev and ops to get together to to kind of plan these out and i'm not necessarily meaning you know get down into the nitty-gritty de- details but more of you know when the op, when the developers say hey we want to use a caching technology great you know everybody sit around the table and you know just hash out you know what technologies they've used what are their opinions on the subject and then kind of reach a high level agreement and then the different departments go off and uh, investigate those so wikipedia defines system design as the process of defining architecture, components, modules, interfaces, and data for a system to satisfy specified requirements. So, yeah, I guess we're going to skip past the uh, requirement section. Um, and really, theory versus practice. In theory, we all sit down around the table when we need to design a new monitoring system, perhaps, and hash out ideas and make sure that we satisfy everyone's requirements and the real practice of the matter is most of the time uh, system design is done in a vacuum whether it's done by the operations team or the developers team or by somebody else um, some group called IT some group called security and then it's sort of presented to the the rest of the uh, rest of the teams uh, to put it politely and it's that practical side of, of system design that <clears throat> I would like to figure out how to, how to do better, how to encourage others really to do better. Part of this, in my experience, is 
not so much getting people to sit around the table, but getting the people who are trying to make the decision to analyze the problem they're trying to solve. There, there are, for example, many different caching algorithms or layers you can use. And knowing the reason that you're choosing one over another is often more important than actually using a caching layer to begin with, because a poor decision in the design portion of the of the task can lead to innumerable complications later. Um, we've talked about this with configuration management and other things in the past, and it can be very informative to the running of a system on why the, the solution was chosen. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of having folks get together and decide as a group rather than having somebody to go off and unilaterally decide that we're, we're going to use this database layer. We're going to use this message pipeline. We're going to use this web server. Um, all of those are also negative, but understanding the problem you're trying to solve before you decide on a solution is usually a good thing. Um, I had a coworker many jobs ago who one of his favorite questions to ask people are after he gave an answer to the question, he said, now, do you really know what question you were trying to ask me? Because that's, that's kind of fundamental. So the, uh, Mike most current example is, hey, developing a monitoring system. And because we desperately need to replace the old. Um, of course, without working with the developers, um, how am I going to ever get them to monitor their and instrument their code? <clears throat> and in my current role as a contractor to a, a fairly decent sized company, a remote contractor to a fairly decent sized company, I've got two things that are really playing against me. I'm remote, so I have that separation from most of the folks in the company. Um, <clears throat> I'm a contractor, so there's a lot of parts of the company that I really don't have a lot of visibility into to begin with. A lot of things I'm not always included on. Um, so that's a, a barrier to doing good system design. Um, so as I design a new monitoring system... Uh, all the operations folks have sort of agreed the way we want to go. We sort of build a proof of concept. And then how do we get the developers involved to make sure we meet all of our requirements? Um, that's been fairly difficult for me since I don't have a lot of visibility into that side of the organization. Uh, fortunately, I had one of them um, complain to me about metrics. It happens all the time. And I said, well... We're thinking about this. Can you can you help us uh, uh, build this new system, or is this new system interesting to you? And fortunately, uh, for me, he was uh, really interested in helping out with that side of the equation and getting the developer side of the house sort of on board and figuring out their side of of the world, which has been really super handy. Um, but I, I totally admit, I kind of stumbled into that. I didn't really know who to reach out to. I have a similar issue with logging infrastructure currently, where the changes from Elasticsearch 1.x to 2.x are fairly significant with field name restrictions and other, other limitations that they've added to the product to make other parts of it scale better. And I don't have a lot of visibility into the fundamental portions of the app of what's important to log, what's not important to log, what's the structure it gets logged in. And one of the developers who's also spent some time in the SRE world 
was able to swoop in several times now and solve a whole host of issues by saying, oh, well, I, I understand the operation side and I understand the development side. And he would go through and he'd fiddle with things and he'd move things around and he'd let the developer side of the house know, okay, so this, these three fields are moving over under the sub-object because they, they need to be out of where they are now or however. So we're actually starting a, a design process for logging in general with the idea that we're going to have a fixed schema for all internal applications that will follow. And instead of having an operations person try to just sort of magic one up from thin air, work with the developers to implement a baseline. This is all of the client IP will always be client underscore IP instead of request IP or other various things. And define types and define operations and then bake them into the common libraries that developers use. So all that the developers do is include the common library and say, yes, I'm logging this thing. And almost by magic, all of the fields are are sorted out. And this is another portion of, of systems design of how do you how do you move pieces of data around and how do you make sure that you're doing things together as a team? I was having a very similar argument today, actually. If you have multiple different applications all uh, exporting a metric you know, about consumed CPU time, wouldn't you want that metric name the same for each application? I hope that really opened someone's mind. And I also I also think uh, this is a, a problem that management has to help solve as well. I, I think, um, like your example, Brendan, where luckily the SRE, you know, bridged the gap. I mean, that's really where a good manager or management would would help facilitate that. And I, I really do think, unfortunately, this is it, it's a lot like with the DevOps theme. It, it, it's a culture thing, and, it, and the culture has to start from the top. Very much agreed. And I'm, I'm lucky that the individual in question saw the problem, jumped on the problem without needing external prodding, and has been a great resource. And Yeah, ditto. I am hoping to meet up with him at some point in the near future and buy him some beer or whatever his choice of beverage is because it's he's made my life so much easier. So how do groups like ours, like the client that, that I work for, uh, how do we better communicate with folks to encourage better system design? I mean, Jared says it starts at the top. Um, being practical... Um, usually have very little control over the top in informing a better situation. So how do you do it when you're the boots on the ground? Me personally, one thing I, I try to do is is read a lot, be mindful of of what's going on, and then just try to introduce those articles to people, especially when I hear they're investigating new technologies and and whatever and and it, it's it, it definitely is a fine line to cross because you don't want to come across too pushy or whatever but just kind of like hey have you ever heard of x y and z and just kind of drop a link to them or whatever and i have found that that has been very helpful because sometimes the person's like oh i i haven't heard of that um so really it's just being you know listening to what people are saying and what they're working on and uh just kind of dropping a line whenever you get a chance there's also a fine line to be to be walked in the hey here's an article and hey i built a, a quick proof of concept to validate 
that this actually functions in a, in a way that would be expected. Because sometimes the inertia that is needed is simply somebody saying, yeah, so I downloaded it, I patched it up, I gave it some basic config files, and I spent you know two or three hours, and now we have the thing, and it's not production ready, it's not scalable, it's not whatever, but it functions. And now that it functions, people can play with it outside of just looking at an academic paper or a press release or a news group posting with people chattering about it. You actually can look at it and poke at it and make it do its thing and get a better sense of the value. Um, but at times when you do that, you're you're overstepping your bounds significantly and you're it's, – it's an interesting balance to try to strike. And it's one of those ones that you have to be there in person – well, you have to be in the situation yourself and try to best judge – what the approach should be. And practically, the the issue I have there is I need to test a new piece of technology at scale. It's one thing if it works in theory as a you know, toy in a Docker image. It's a whole other thing when it's serving a million requests a second. And that's, that's always something that's very challenging for me to model and figure out if this new technology is going to be a solution to a problem we have. This strikes upon another one of the pieces of systems design to me, which is how do you implement a system for scale when you don't have an ability to do any testing for load other than with production load? And in some environments, you can do things like I'm going to I'm going to take a copy of all of the incoming requests. I'm going to you, you, let's say you're using Kafka, so now you can you have a second consumer that just streams all of the the incoming against your test system, so you have a, an easy way to do a load test. But in many other ways, it's okay. We're going to have to set up a fake set of load, and we're gonna we're gonna hope that we get it close enough. Like when we're testing the Elk stuff, um, one of the things we frequently do before we get to the point of using the, using Kafka is we set up generators. We take you know a hundred gig log file and just start dumping it against the ingestion over and over and over again. And we extrapolate from, okay, so if, if one node can handle this many writes a second, if we have 30 nodes in the cluster, we can handle, you know, that probably times 30 minus a little bit of overhead. And you can start working on scaling designs that way without actually having spent all the money for all of the hardware up front. I don't always test, but when I do, it's in production. You know the difference between theory and practice? In theory, they're the same. Exactly. So yeah, I've done some similar stuff with Graphite. I have load generators for Graphite metrics and StatsD metrics, which are are what I use to make sure that, hey, I've changed this component in the system. Can it still handle load? And that's, that's usually quite helpful and quite revealing. It's still challenging to, to simulate actual production load. It's still challenging to... It's still challenging to really duplicate production load that way, but at least I can, I can, uh, I can create volume that way, and sheer number of metrics, which is most of what I need to test with, uh, since I've developed way too much of graphite into Go at this point. Yeah, I've never found a way to test to load test elk um, query traffic. Ingestion traffic is easy. Well, relatively easy, but simulating what happens when, you know, 40 or 50 users start typing in random queries into the search box isn't something that I've found a way to, to capture and replay properly yet. 
But uh, scaling Prometheus, one of the things I really needed to figure out how to do with the Prometheus monitoring system is figure out when individual Prometheus servers are going to fall over because of, of scaling issues, load issues. And it took some some beefy hardware and uh, monitoring uh, the node exporter from 15 or 1600 machines until I finally figured out what that felt like. And that's that's much more of a production uh, uh, sort of test. But that's really the only method I had to uh, actually figure out you know, what makes a Prometheus server fall over. And then I get to the point where I can actually start doing some tuning and, and making things better. And yes, there are fun things to tune, always. All right, Jared, did we lose you? <laughs> no, I'm still here. <laughs> you're letting us talk uh, over you again. No, no, you're not talking over me. I just uh, don't have anything to add, unfortunately. <laughs> you're hitting all the all the hot points. Back to one of Jack's earlier points, the... The siloing people who do systems design from each other leads to very bad outcomes. I've seen many organizations that I've worked for that silos can build irreparable walls between groups of people who then implement the same thing in four different ways, each poorly, because each of them held a different piece of the stack. So the guys who manage the operation side of things build you know, management tools that do one thing and guys who do the database side of things build other sets of tools. And really all of these tools should have been integrated into one piece, but because of politics and bosses and other things, the groups never talk to each other. or The people never talk to each other. And on the rare occasion that somebody from security would talk to somebody from networking and somebody from operations at the same time, really awesome things could happen, but it was frequently people developing in a vacuum. Well, and I, I think that's why it's important to have relationships with with people from multiple parts of the company, um, especially if you're remote. Um, not even, I mean, not even to just kind of you know to keep tabs on what's going on, but just I mean, it's just helpful from an organizational view when you hear what those people are working on because you're like, oh, well, that's the direction that part of the company is going, and maybe we can better help them with the stuff we're working on right now. And, and it, it, you know, it goes back to collaboration and just, uh, you know, when you have uh, an almost like diversity, you know, if you have a wider breadth of people you're talking to, working with, it just more interesting things happen. Well, it's also important to note that these issues don't only happen in large organizations. I've seen the, the siloing effect happen in organizations that are, 25 people in a building and you have little groups doing their thing and not interacting with other groups and not building tools that other groups can use or even designing systems that other other groups can use because they either weren't clued in or they didn't take other people's needs into consideration or they didn't want to talk to that guy today because of reasons. So at times it's really critical to get people into, into a physical or virtual room together, but common chat room or a Slack channel or an actual physical conference room to say, guys, what are, we, what are we trying to do here? One of the issues that my current client has 
is that most of their teams have developed at some point a private chat room so that they can chat about whatever they're doing without uh, interference from management or from people poking in and asking random questions. So they've ended up with a lot of dual uh, dual channel reality. They have the channel that the team talks in and the silent channel that's the uh, more or less public channel that other people can come and ask questions in. And that that clearly really doesn't lead to to good system design or or good communication through the company. So that pattern... Yourself, don't do that. I've seen that pattern at every job I've ever worked at that had an operational focus on using chat as a tool for communication. People will create a room and then that becomes either the funny room or the party room or the whatever room and slowly all of the important communication moves to that and the other rooms start dying off. But the the kind of off-color side channel rooms usually are populated by people who have a lot of ability and desire and they're they are ex- they're explicitly excluding certain other folks in the organization and then as soon as that happens silos start going up and i you know on the flip side i completely understand if management is going to come stand in your way all the time or ask annoying questions you really want to be able to hash things out before you present it upstream without that sort of interference um conversely if you have customers that are always sort of tramping into your chat room to ask annoying questions while you're trying to do some some of that design or get some work done that's that's also not very helpful to you and probably not very helpful to the the customer either whoever that customer may be probably another uh, uh team member in the organization somewhere um but i i definitely understand some of that desire and i've definitely been cut by both edges of the sword So that wraps it up for episode 13 of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf, Jack Neely, and I'm Jared Watkins. Thank you for listening and good night.